You are now listening to The Forefront Radio, where we discuss history, the Bible, the history of the Israelites, science, and other matters. Bring it out. The history of the blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans as it relates to the Bible. Who were you prior to slavery? Who were you prior to colonization? These answers and more can be seen and heard as you listen to The Forefront Radio. Thank you for listening to the Forefront Radio. I'm your host, Afiel Levi Israel. At this time, we have a clip from the post-traumatic slave discussion that we have with Dr. Joy DeGruy in a clubhouse uh, talk. So I want to give uh, part two to this listen. So listen carefully, please. That question, that's, that's just the universe working again. I had that question about the concept of being seen and how foreign it is. So thank you for for, for, for tapping into that energy. Uh, and then secondly, uh, Avatar was not the first time James Cameron stole from Africa <laughs> or Africans. Terminator was written by a sister. Right. Who also wrote The Matrix, just in case y'all didn't know. So just know when you're watching Terminator or uh, The Matrix, uh, that is a black woman, Sophia Stewart, the author. Anywho. Uh, the front, excuse me, the Forefront Express, please welcome to the stage. Yes, sir. Good, wonderful evening, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Joy DeGruy, for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, join us in this conversation. Oh, and John, what you mentioned that was really poignant because think about the matrix. You have, uh, the, uh, key terms such as Zion being the place of deliverance and, uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar being a ship, but that's another conversation. Um, <laughs> my question for you, Dr. Joy, is uh, what is, you mentioned earlier about the uh, naivety of some of our people when it comes to relating to our children, the necessity of understanding the world that they live in. My question is, what is the, I have two actually, but I'll just ask the one for time's sake. What is the uh, relationship between post-traumatic slave syndrome and the passive aggressive racism in this world? Not necessarily the overt that we can readily see, but the passive aggressive racism in the world today. What is the relationship between the two? So I, I think that this, it's the passive aggressiveness. When we start looking at you know, one of the things that I started to try to, to do in, in my in my workshops, you know, there's a lot. I have, I have a class that I teach, a 10-week uh, graduate-level course. I'm teaching it right now. I actually had the first class on Tuesday. Um, and people from all over the world um, are able to take the class. That's the reason why I actually control it, because I wanted it to be open to anybody and everyone. Um, and regardless of your educational background, I just wanted that to happen. And one of the one of the things that um, will happen to me inevitably, and it's a pretty diverse class, of course, the majority of people are black. Uh, and then, you know, even more, the majority is, are people of color. And there, is all, there are always some white people there that are, you know, that are really tracking and trying to make things happen and trying to figure this stuff out uh, and, and do the work. And one of the things that always gets asked of me is, what happened to white people? <laughs> you know, again, you know, you, you cannot go through uh, this 300 years of terrorism um, and just overt, covert uh, racism, 
a barbarism, um, truly. You can't do that and be remain unscathed. And while that's not my discipline, that's not my area of study, it's something that I think we have to, to begin to appreciate. You know, people, uh, you often hear people talk about unconscious racism, right? Or we'll hear systemic racism. We're here, you know, people are not aware. Of, in, in other words, folks have normalized certain kinds of behaviors and attitudes. Black people have, white people have, everyone has on certain levels. And that shows up sometimes in, 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 with this passive aggressive kind of stuff. Because I think, think about this. Like I said, you, you, you create a way uh, to, to heal yourself. For, for example, nature will, if you, you throw toxins at nature, nature will adapt to the toxins. Toxins are no longer lethal to them right? Everything in nature adapts. And so what happens to a a people that have normalized aggression, oppression, um, uh, privilege, all of of these, it becomes part of what people have to do to protect themselves. It's knee-jerk, but it's extremely dangerous to those that they are uh, uh, basically inflicting with this behavior. Now, the behavior for them, they can be conscious of it. They can be um, unconscious of it. But I believe it is a part of their survival through what I, you've got to recognize as pretty horrific behaviors that they witnessed as well. So, so let me give you an example of it. And again, I don't know any other way <laughs> to do this. Um, I, I remember uh, working with adolescent adult um, male and female night workers, folks engaged in prostitution. For five years, I did that. Um, working with folks on the street, working with call girls and everybody in between, male and female. And I remember, um, you know, the program I was working with, the Council for Prostitution Alternatives is, was the name of it. Um, they were trying to get funds to help get get these people, get folks off the street, get them out of the life who were trying to escape the life. And trust me, I'm actually going to get back to that passive aggressive piece. And um, so we do this thing in a real, a little ritzy uh, place where, you know, again, people are, th- this is a nonprofit organization essentially begging, you know, begging for money. That's kind of, you know, the game there, dog and pony show. So, we you know, we introduce a number of the women and we talk about our success stories and all the things that you're supposed to do to get them to sign a check. And so I'm coming into the lobby and they're all of this, this whole, this, this tables and, you know, they're, they're getting people's names and signing them in. And these are the women. Um, uh, these are all white women. They're extremely wealthy. They have diamonds so big that they can't stand up on their hand and their jewels everywhere. And they're just thrilled to death. And they see me. And then when I walk up and they said, we think it's just so wonderful. So wonderful what you're doing with these poor women. It is just really, you know, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm trying to bite my tongue, right? Because it's, it's not my organization. It's, you know, it's, it's the organization I'm doing work for, but, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to create a problem. They say, you know, and it's just so terrible that these women, um, you know, make these choices. right? And, that, and that's what, that's what just, when it hit me, I said, choices? I said, you know, this is truly a supply and demand situation. I said, because it's really people like your husbands that keep this business going, (laughs) right? I said, because the average trick is a middle-aged white man married with with children, (laughs) right? I said, that's who the trick is. 
I said, so when we start looking at how this happened and where it started and choices, these choices lost started a long time ago in the dark. And we like we like to believe that it's some sort of a little victimless, victimless crime. And you know, so hot. these women are turning the, the color of ripened fruit at this point. Um, but I'm done. I'm done and I'm done. So now let's fast forward this this notion, because you see what what people do, like just like the the little girl that's on the plantation that plays with the little enslaved girl on the plantation. It's her little friend. They play every day. And one day she finds she's been called to supper and all the women of the house are gathered together and they're pulling all the food together. And of course, the enslaved African cooks and, and, and women in the house are putting you know, bowls of food in front of everyone as they stand back silently and watch. And the little girl looks around and notices that her dad's not at the table. So she goes into the study and he's not in the study. And then she goes into the parlor and he's not in the parlor. And she sees a light coming from, well, the barn. And so she goes outside and she looks in the barn and she sees her father with her little eight-year-old friend. And he screams at her in some way and she runs back to the house. Now she's trembling and she's at the table, but she can't quite eat because you see all the ladies sitting around the table know where daddy is. And when daddy comes in, she rushes upstairs, crying, goes to her room and he goes up to her room and he he just strokes her her hair and he says to her, they're not like us, sweetie. And he wraps her in racism. He embraces her in racism and her choices to accept daddy or to dehumanize her little friend. Those are her choices. And so she chooses her survival. And this, again, this, these are all secrets because, see, nobody, everybody says pass the potatoes, but they know where daddy is. And so what I'm saying is that when we see this, the insidiousness of this passive aggressiveness, I'm not sure that this is not part of the epigenetic defense mechanisms to try to survive, uh, although now it's cracking at the seams, um, all of the ugly. But the thing that we have to most be aware of is that we cannot internalize that and we need to call it out when we see it. That's what we have to do. And we have to teach our children to do, to say, I'm, I'm curious about why you're doing this. We don't have to, you know, you don't have to take the earrings off, but we most certainly <laughs> have to call it out. And that's how we interrupt it. We cannot begin, in other, in other words, I'm not going to engage in the secret with you by pretending you didn't just do what you did or say what you said. That's what we have to do. Uh, but we need to know that just along with all the other adaptive, sick, twisted behaviors that came from that time, it shows up. And we're we're supposed to ignore it and pretend we didn't see it. I'm going to tell you the emperor's naked. That's just who I am. Mm. And see, Dr. Joy, what you just what you just touched on, that defense mechanism against insecurities being exposed and in a corporate and corporate in a corporate, yeah, in, in a corporate environment, are me. Whoa. To call naked, that's a liability. To to point out their nudity, their insecurities, that's a liability. So, I appreciate you bringing that bringing that up, and that was a great question uh, for Frank. 
You also mentioned earlier about appropriate adaptation. Would you liken it similar to um, during the Greco-Roman Empire when they forced their way into Northeast Africa, Jerusalem, Egypt, um, to that uh, Hellenization that our ancestors had to suffer from and the assimilation here in America? Would you say that's kind of similar? Absolutely. Pardon, pardon the interruption. I appreciate you, brother. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep moving because we got a lot of folks. But thank you so much for that original question. Yes, I, I do. It is, you know. And again, mm-hmm. um, you, you, it's not always been pretty, you know. But we, we, you do what you have to do. The issue has to, has to be reached when we say, when does it has, did it lose its utility? When did it not begin to work against us? That's where my work comes in and say, okay, that was real. I ain't mad at him. But we can't do that anymore. We got to stop those behaviors. They Mm -hmm. had utility and they had a necessity and it was part of our agency during that time until it isn't. And that's what we have to be careful of. You know, sometimes, you know, we we begin to take on things uh, that our families say, say and do, you know, because Big Mama did it. It was good enough for Big Mama. It's good enough for me. Not necessarily. (laughs) Coded behavior. Yeah. Yes. Just running the operating system on an outdated software, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Well indeed. put. D. Yes, yes, indeed. D, thank you for coming to the stage. What's on your mind? Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And thank you so much, Dr. Joy. Oh, my goodness. I don't know where to really begin, but I want to send flowers to you and just thank you for your time in developing this masterpiece uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome. Um, I'm a professor here at um, community college here in North Carolina, and I also teach seventh grade English, social studies, economics. And I have introduced my book to both uh, settings, both, both class settings. And, it, and both settings are very unique. Um, of course, children conceptualize your work totally different than uh, adults. and um, But both you know, just like you said, the children have to be introduced to this work. It is necessary for real Black love, uh, self-love. And I love how you kind of lay that out in your book to really focus on what Black unity looks like on a global level. I really appreciate your, um, also your um, recognition of Black Indigenous Americans and how that unity is dangerous to white oppressors. Um, so I just want to send you your flowers. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to get into um, just basically, well, my first question, first of all, my I want to put myself first is about this class because I'm also in my master's program here at East Carolina University. And I would love to pick up that class and, and tag it along to my, um, to, you know, my program and, and what I'm, what I'm gaining, I'm gaining my MAED in adult education. I would love to get more information on that one. My next question is like, what would you recommend? I, I, I've partnered your book with another book from here to equality, which we play. I actually play a book club, um, in activists taking action, uh, of your book. I, and there's no audio of your book, actually. I kind of have to convert it into from a PDF, edit it, convert it, and then play audio through another app. But oh. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's worth it. Your work is master as a masterpiece. I want to know, like, what would you recommend as we deconstruct your book? 
uh, for the youth and for adults is very hard, especially being Black in America, to uh, get through this and just get through the realities that you lay out so gracefully. And uh, how would you also recommend me getting through this in the work field? It's really interesting and unique. Uh, You know, administration will say, oh, CRT. But when we get to the real truth of that theory, it becomes something that's um, unattractive. And I would like your advice on just how to navigate through all of that. And also if that uh, class would be an option for uh, me. Um, okay, so you had about three or four questions. There. <laughs> I love the way she maximized her time. That was she maximized her time. She I did mean. maximize her time. Um, first of all, you know, if you're talking about my course, the one I teach, I think you are. Um, you can just go to my website and there's there's two courses. One is the general course, which is a 10 week at after at the end of which I talk about my evidence based models that I use in community and in schools. Um, The other is my study guide. I don't know if you have the study guide because the study guide really, um, really helps you navigate the book. Uh, I really take the book, break it up and and give create questions um, some for group kind of whole group questions, others where there's, it's more internal. It's one where anyone can use it, actually. Actually, anyone can use them because it, it really is beginning to question how you come to perceive yourself the way you do. Why, where it came from, and whether it's something you are going to hold on to, whether you're going to tweak it or you're going to get rid of it altogether. Um, and this is, again, creating this this. Uh, not swallowing whole everything, saying, okay, for example, what do you call yourself? You call yourself black, African-American, colored, a Negro, a nigga, a nigger. What do you call yourself and why? And who taught you that and who you think taught them? And is this something you want to pass on to another generation? So what, what the study guide does is operationalize it, right? It helps you see some of the questions we need to start asking ourselves about how we move through the world. And some of those things are really great and wonderful we should hold on to. And some of those things we should not. But it becomes part of the self-introspective experience that allows people to be able to navigate it in a way that they can now apply it. Part two, the other class that we teach is uh, implementation. So this this is when people have had the class, the 10 weeks, and are now wanting to implement Uh, the strategies and the model in their community, in their environment, in their work. Uh, It starts with, of course, social problem, the problem analysis, uh, naming the problem, understanding it and recognizing how to uh, basically get to the root cause. Uh, I can actually share with you and I would actually also put you in touch with if you go to my website, uh, go to my website and, and it will say contact Dr. Joy. And I can kind of give you some of the specifics of how we are navigating systems. It's not something that I could do here because it's lengthy. But um, talking about how do you apply what we've learned, and that's part of the course. People will ask me, Dr. Joy, can I have your model? I say, no, you cannot have my model. Because this is not one of those checklists of things that you think you can do. This is heart work, H-E-A-R-T, heart work. So it's not purely cerebral. While we, you know, I cross the T's and dot the I's, make certain that it's, it's something you can evaluate, surely count and measure, no problem there. However, you need a, something more. You need to know how to be with people that look like me 
and not harm them with all of your good intentions, one way or another. So I have to be certain. That's why they don't even get the model till the end of the 10 weeks, because you need to understand the true nature of the injury before you get the model. And then once you get the model, then we start looking at how are you going to use this model in your environment? And that's the five week class where we help people actually implement the model in their spaces. But it's not a quick thing. It's not. It's, and, and again, uh, you know, people often, especially white people who say, God, I really want to help. I really want to. Can I just can I get your model? No. What makes you think you can use my model? What makes you think you can? You, why, why do you think you, you know? And so, again, that's me safeguarding, um, really, uh, the most vulnerable people of all. Those are the folks that you're working with, that I'm working with, that we don't want to further harm, uh, which means that we need to know the instruments and we need need to know how to use them appropriately. So I would say reach out to me um, there and I can kind of give you a better sense of that. Excellent. Yes, absolutely. I'll be in contact. Um, I go by D. Livingston, so I'll okay. contact you with that. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, John. Joy, thank you. I appreciate this Appreciate so much. you, D. Thank you, sis. Um, and so I uh, really want to, real quick, uh, Sister Joy, you might see microphones flash. So if, if you look at my profile, I'm flashing my mic right now. Okay, what does that mean? I don't know. That, that, is, the, that is the clubhouse equivalent of applause. All right. So, so just know if everybody wants to flash their mics right now, just to showcase what that looks like when it's lit up. Oh, that's so nice. That there is it. so nice. I love it. Right, I'm going to go ahead and move you back. Thank you. you. Go move yourself back to the audience. I appreciate you, sis. Kojo, what's up, bro? It's been a minute. It has, my brother. I want to give you your flowers for pulling this off, my guy. <laughs> Look, that's Doctor Joy. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy to be connected. Let me just say that. I feel you. Great job, and Doctor Joy. I really appreciate you being here, and love hearing the message and um, everything that you have to share. Thank you. So, so for me, first of all, I do want to address the that that normalcy that you spoke about when you went to Africa. I try to explain that to people my first time returning to Ghana as um, an adult and the peace and that normalcy that you felt is exactly what I felt. Um, and there's so much, I, I strongly recommend, strongly recommend to people in the diaspora who haven't been back to the continent to go to Ghana if ever they have the opportunity because of that, that, that normalcy feeling. Um, so I want to um, call you out for that. But my, my question was specific to um, what I've been feeling as I've aged. Um, I have become more disillusioned by the possibility that we are coming to some type of solution here. Um, and mostly because what I've seen, especially in the last couple of years, is whiteness really clinging on to the reins of power authority and supremacy and curious right what would you say to young young professionals going into the working world young black professionals young professionals of color um the same demographic of folks going into high school and college like what is the outlook for them uh when it comes to this this disease or racism you know, uh, and I know John, John and I have had and continue to have this conversation, just he and I. I, I will tell everyone that I know is you need to have a plan B. You need everybody 
need to have a plan B because the writing's on the wall here. My father, if he was alive, would say that we're seeing the last gasp of a dying dog. That we are, these are folks that are willing to take this country, burn it to the ground before they share it with us. That is a truth. And what we have to do, again, it's, it's a matter of recognizing, you know, everybody here on here, we got to keep the lights on. We're trying to take care of our families. We're trying to do all that. But please build in a, a, a plan B. Now, for me, a plan B is buying land outside of this country. Establishing a place to be outside of this country. Now, I, that may seem like it's ex- extreme to some of y'all, but I don't think it is. I tell every single one of my children, I will pay for you to make certain your passport is uh, is up to date, because at any point that we need to go, we need to go and we got a place to go. And I think that, you know, it's something you take for granted. You take for granted. This is America. But nobody thought, you know, what would happen at the Capitol would happen. Nobody thought 9-11 would happen. Nobody thought not in America. Yes, in America. And if you talk to even some of the, the best, brightest white scholars, they're talking civil war. You know, it's, this is not something that, you know, folks, and when you begin to look at it, like in Georgia, you know, I have a home in Georgia. And let me just say, they basically have said, we will lie, cheat, steal and kill you. <laughs> OK, we will do all of the above to retain our whiteness because the fear is great. Now, here's the reality. In game, at the end of the day, it's a no win. There's there's no win. You got to realize that in the world, Europeans are a minority. Hence, you start seeing white nations willing. I mean, there are people in America that are saying, wait, hey, we should be siding with Russia. After all, they're white. And so we you have to recognize, and I'm and that that piece, you're not disillusioned. You're seeing clearly. You are seeing clearly. And what I say is, you know, be alarmed but not paralyzed, but be alarmed. And part of what, 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 what not being paralyzed means you start building in that plan B. Don't, don't sink everything here because I think it's going to go awry real fast and faster than some of us would, would want to believe. And again, here's, here's the, the you know, and, and I, I feel this very strongly. America has created the perfect storm for America's enemies. They know exactly what to light, when to light it, and how to light it. And it will take this country down. And this country will be taken down around racism. It truly will. And those who are waiting, those who hate, those nations that hate America, they're lying in wait. And they're creating the very, the perfect storm for this to happen. Oh, so my God. In the midst of that, you know, in the midst of that, I'm telling my grandchildren, my children, you know, look, um, I just need you to know you need to be ready to get up out of here. Mm. I know I know we're working on it. <laughs> Me, meanwhile, I'm, this I'm folks just saying. flooding over here. <laughs> I mean, there's, 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 there's hundreds of thousands a year trying to get into this mug. So uh, anyway, uh, Kojo, I, I, hope, I hope that Dr. Joy addressed your but, question. But there are droves leaving, too. That's that the other part. thing I'm hearing. When you leave, when you start traveling internationally, you would never believe how many people are leaving the United States. Mm. It's the secrets that make us sick, isn't it? They, they, they don't they don't advertise that. All they show is who wants to see. America's got the greatest marketing engine in the world. 
tell you what, the product, the product is, uh, <laughs> never mind. That's a whole nother story. Coach, thank you. Thank uh, you. I appreciate you, brother. It's always good to see you. Like in the rooms. Yes. Khaleesi. Hi, John. It's Rachel. I just oh, I changed my name. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm going to call her by her name. What's, what's up, sis? <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hey. Hi, Dr. Joy. I'm so grateful um, to be able to share space with you. Uh, so I'm in my last semester of law school. I'm a 13th Amendment researcher studying the badges and incidents of slavery. But right now I'm doing research on how buffer classes are used to further the oppression of Black women. So um, my question centers around when we talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome and um, being half black, half white, and how being part colonizer um, impacts folks and when they disassociate with their blackness, uh, specifically this question comes from the um, family statements after the trial of Kim Potter for killing Dante Wright and how, you know, they were so surprised that this happened and they could never imagine it. And yeah, just how, what, what that buffer class of being biracial, how that manifests in post-traumatic slave syndrome. Thank you. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, uh, I actually added when I, I, I revised the book, I added a piece uh, around um, multi-pigmented people, <laughs> multi-pigmented people, uh, folks uh, that are having to deal with uh, that duality in a sense. So here, here's what the reality is. You know, first of all, my family, um, my family is the United Nations. <laughs> Honest to God, if you, you see pictures of my family, every we got everybody, everybody's there. And that is really indeed going to be the picture of the future. Uh, no matter what you do when you project yourself out, 50, 60 years, whoever it is you're looking at is going to be some shade of brown, which is the, the pathological fear that white people have at this point, that they are going to disappear, even though we know that, it, you know, there is no biologically, biological basis for race. We're, we're, the fear is losing whiteness, right? Losing their sense of, well, differentness otherness. They want to be the other, the singular superior other. And so there's this real fear as we see this mixture, which is inevitable. I mean, it's not, that's not something that anybody's going to be able to change or stop. When you look at the majority of the world, the world is a world of color, and you're going to see that happening. However, now let me tell you what happens in most of my lectures when I get to this conversation and we start, you know, going back and forth around, well, race is a social construct and all of this. And it goes, so why are we still speaking of things in racial terms? And I said, because racism is alive and well. That's why we're talking about it. In the future, they're going to look back at us like we're cavemen. But right now, racism is alive and well. So, yeah, we have to still talk about race because what ends up happening is people are trying to figure out how to survive, right? Where, where are my benefits? Where are my, uh, the pros and cons of my being? And if I'm half black and half white, well, you know, I have people in my family that are half black and half white. Some of them look black. Some of them look like they're Puerto Rican. Some of them look like they're Indian. And some of them look like they're white. And so you look at that and you realize this is in one family. 
right? In one family, all the children end up looking all different kind of ways. But you say, well, that doesn't matter because here's what they are. But how they move through the world is determined by that. How they move through the world, the world looks at them. And what, what has to happen with this, when, you know, when I started to look at, I, I tell you when, it, when, when things hit me, when um, I started doing work around uh, slavery, you know, many, many years ago, and I started to notice that white women were getting a pass. White women always started getting a pass because, you know, they're women and they're an oppressed group and they kept getting a pass. I said, well, you know, my grandmother would r- roll over in her grave to say that you and her, <laughs> you, because you're a white woman and my, my grandmother who, who had to clean floors. Uh-uh, no, no, we, we're not talking about the same thing. We're not talking when we say oppression, we're not talking about the same thing. And at the same time, when we start looking at these issues around biracialness, I am actually encouraged by some of the young young people. When I say young, I'm talking about as young as 13, from 13 to, say, 18. I'm looking at a real different group of young people who are claiming and owning their whole selves, and they're not allowing their parents or anyone else to try to structure that identity. And and what we have to do and what I believe about uh, the struggles that are going on, they're real. Because if you're in America, you're dealing with racism. I don't care who you are. Racism is a real thing. Nobody gets absolved. But we have to also recognize the law and who the law protects and who the law does not protect. And what people start realizing when it comes down to the wire or where where is it that I get some where can I get some privilege here? Where can I bolster my otherness here? And they're using it. And so those of us that are looking on, once again, we need to lean into this. That 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 whole it's almost like, yeah, well, you know, she she admitted she just it was an accident. (laughs) She accidentally did it. She didn't mean to. Right. And so therefore she gets a pass for that. I don't even know if she's going to do any time. Truth be told. But at the at the at the at the I guess at the, the beginning and end of all of this is we're seeing the structures of racism and how they work and how they privilege some and not others. And when I look at that young man and I recognize just even, you know, his actions, all of the things that, that centered around that. I mean, I'm curious, right, because I don't know his family. I don't I don't really have any um, real sense of, of of how he was moving through the world. But it's just really interesting to me, even, you know, nobody even really talked about him and who he was and and the wise. Nobody ever, ever said anything about it. And, and that goes, you know, it gets again, it gets hidden. It gets disappeared, you know. And so we start focusing in on her and we start focusing in on that on the verdict and we start focusing in on that. But, but there's a bigger piece here that nobody's really talking about. And it's exactly what you're what you're what you're saying. It's exactly what mm. you're saying. The change is going to be in the law. We need you, Rach. Please, please, we need you. Please, please. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, love. Um, Dr. Tinka, welcome. Greetings, greetings. Thank you so much, John, for bringing me on the stage. And thank you so much, Dr. Joy, for being here. I absolutely love you. I just remember the first time I heard you speaking about cognitive dissonance. And it was on like a clip I was looking at on... um, 
one of the YouTube channels. And it just really resonated with what I was thinking about at that time. Um, I'm a family medicine physician, uh, born and raised in South Central L.A. Um, my folks are from the deep south, Louisiana, Mississippi, and I am a family medicine physician here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I work with underserved population um, basically taking care of Medicaid patients, patients who do not have insurance. And so I've been doing that for the last 17 plus years. So I have a, um, a very strong understanding of where we stand right now as far as our problems with healthcare and access and equity. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I've been kind of focusing on. And what I wanted to ask you specifically as a, as a Black female physician um, with history and ties to the enslaved Africans. When I come into spaces where I see my African sisters who don't have that history, that, that they came from the continent or their second generations here, I see that they are rock stars as serial entrepreneurs. And I applaud them so much and I am inspired by them. I wanted to ask you, when you look at that situation, and in my mind, I see that it's really a tie to the damage that has been done to us because of slavery and the post-traumatic um, slave syndrome that I feel kind of hinders us from being serial entrepreneurs like that, whether it's self-inflicted or something um, that's more coming from the systemic racism. I feel like that's affecting our abilities to be um, the serial entrepreneurs, whereas I see my African sisters just you know, not letting any barriers stop them. Um, and that's kind of where my mind is at right now, but I wanted to get your opinion on that. And um, just go ahead and just have a little bit more insight on what you thought about that. Excellent Thank question. You. I, I love that question. And here's what I would say to that. You know, when I was in, <laughs> matter of fact, I, it's so amazing. There, there's so much confluence. So many things are going on, but we're so connected. Uh, we are so connected. So the average parent, black parent, you know, and, and John intimated something about the whole idea. You have to be twice as good, twice as hard to be, get half as much, you know, that whole idea. When you go to Africa, I'm now let me there's a story I tell when I and, and I wish I had the pictures. I wish you could see them. I went to a village um near Kumasi when I was in Ghana. And I remember going to this village and I met this little girl. She's nine years old. One of the little girls traveling with me is her first cousin living in the United States who was eleven years old. The nine-year-old girl was a straight A student could cook a full meal and owned her own business. Her business, her family owned a well. Not everybody has a well. So she would, after school, after she did her studies, she would go, she would get little baggies, fill them with water, put them in a wheelbarrow and sell them for a nickel to people who were working outside in the hot sun. She thought of the, the need, figured out how to fill it, and created her own business, okay? Nobody thought that was odd. The difference in the United States is we teach our children, you go to school, get good grades, go to college so you can work for someone. Plantation That's what theory. <laughs> you can work for someone. And the whole idea of ownership, which you're, which you're talking about, you got to, again, we got to look at the etiology. Where does it begin? Go and girl, get that good job. I remember when I actually, I got to tell, I'm sorry, this is no other way for me to do it. I got to tell the story. So I 
I actually woke up at two o'clock in the morning with the words post-traumatic slave syndrome before I knew anything. I didn't even know what it was. I just got up, wrote it down. I went, okay, I guess I'm going to find out what that is because I had no idea what it was when I wrote it down. It was inspired, literally, those words. Okay, so I start, you know, coming into a realization. I start studying. I start looking at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and understanding uh, the impact of having a single trauma experience directly or indirectly resulting in stress-related illness. So I'm going, if one stressor, one crisis can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder that you may not have even experienced directly, it may be someone you loved experienced it or you heard about it, could cause post-traumatic stress disorder in you. I just started doing the math on what 300 years of trauma did. Okay, so now I'm saying I got to take some time to do the research. But I don't have... You know, there was no uh, trust fund for me. Okay, there was no uh, safety net. I grew up poor. Of course, I didn't know I was poor. We would be considered the working poor. But I I grew up poor. You know, we didn't, you know, we I didn't inherit anything. And so I'm trying to figure out how am I going to, how am I going to write this book? I don't have the money to write this book. And my mom, who had passed away at the time, I, I'm, I'm, I can hear her voice. You know, you got a good job, tenure track position at Portland State University. You don't want to mess that up, right? You got a good retirement. You got insurance. You know, I'm hearing this in my ear because that's pragmatic, right? That's, that's being pragmatic. But I knew I needed to write the book. But what went over at that time was I went, okay, so yeah, I can't. Mm, nah, I'm going to I'm just, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just try to stack some money for the next couple years. And then after that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take off and I'm going to write the book. This is what I decided. <laughs> this is what I thought was going to happen. So I flew into Chicago and I was invited. Uh, and in fact, the audience was like, it was a bunch of uh, suits and, you know, with little corn pipes. You know, it was that crew. And I was presenting the the theory of post-traumatic slave syndrome and my uh, my uh, desire to write the book and what it was about and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, you know, very well received. Everybody clapped. They thought it was great. And in the back of the room, way in the back of the room is this elder and she's on a walker. So she's got a walker. Right. And beside her are two young people, maybe 10, 11, very young, but very, very reverently respectful of her. Because every time they try to help her, she would snatch her arm away and she would, you know, try to make it down. So I go back on the stage. I get to the mic. I say, listen, could you all move? There is an elder in the back of the room. I want to say to you, you don't walk another step. I will come to you because she's trying to get to me. Come down to the stage. So I get off the stage. I walk down to this woman. I'm going to describe her. She is what people here call blue black, smooth, not a wrinkle. And she had to be, I mean, up in age, up clearly in her 90s. And if you saw her hands in the big gnarled kind of knuckles, and then she had the little blue haze around the eyes. And what that actually is, is a loss of pigment. As you get older, you'll see black folks and they'll have that little blue ring. I actually have it now. (laughs) I actually saw it. But it happens because of the loss of pigmentation. And so she's standing there in front of me. And, you know, people are now kind of, you know, buzzing around. They're, you know, talking and, you know, kind of waiting so they see if they could talk to me or whatever. But I, I'm focused on this, on this, this elder. 
And she literally, as she had been walking, she was laboring to kind of breathe, to catch her breath. So I waited. And it, you know, it seemed like, you know, a, a good long time before she, you know, could get herself kind of positioned. And then finally she let go of the walker and she stood up as straight as she could stand. And she smiled at me. And then she reached out her hand to me and I, and I put my hand in hers and then she actually grasped both of my hands and pulled them into her. And she leaned into my face and she looked at me. And she said, I have waited for you my whole life. Now I can die. Now I can die. And that is all she said. Mm. The two young people at her side would turn you could just see the shock and terror the no no nana no 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 you know and she just smiled and for a moment I didn't believe she was real for a moment I stopped and I thought oh my god did this really happen who is this woman is she really here is she my ancestor reaching through time to tell me what it was I needed to do who was this woman I couldn't hear anybody anymore. I was like in a tunnel and she turned and she walked out of the room and I went home and I wrote that book and I wrote that book. And when I wrote post-traumatic, people were saying things like, if you want to hide something from black people, put it in the book. It is my number one seller. I never made more money in my life before. I never looked back. And my ancestor told me, you're going to write this book. And I'm, I'm, I'm here to say to you that it took that experience for me to let go of all that I had been carrying, all of the fears and the anxiety and, you know, let's be practical and all of that. I let go for something bigger. And there's always something bigger. But we got to let go. And we got we've got to understand that this is what we've been taught. This is what we this is part of our training, of how you survive in this hostile environment. And we're not trained to be entrepreneurs. We're trained to be workers, even though we get degrees. You're going to get a good job, not you're going to own a business and, and hire others. Right. You're going to get a good job. And I think that mentality is very deep. It's beyond the epidermis. It's beyond the epidermis. And mm. I know because I experienced it myself. Yeah, I, I would say, Dr. Joy, that, oh boy, you hit something right there. My husband, when we were in residency in um, Kansas City, um, mm, his mom, um, he was working at Hallmark um, as a writer. He's like the first black male writer at Hallmark. And I got into residency in New Orleans. This was before, before Hurricane Katrina. And we did get hit with Hurricane Katrina. But his mom said, just what you said, you got a good job with benefits. You can't follow that girl down to New Orleans. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> he's got to follow me because I got to finish my medical school. You know, I've got to go finish up residency. Um, but it was in my mind that she didn't understand what we were trying to do here. We have, you know, I understood the assignment. I needed to go to New Orleans, finish up my, my medical training, and then we could put ourselves in a place to be more... Um, more in control of things. Now I'm at a crossroads where I'm hearing you so well, Dr. Joy. And I don't want to leave my patients 
but I got to go. I, I just feel like um, they don't value me. And one of my mentors told me, you don't go where you're tolerated. You go where you're celebrated. Mm. I said, hallelujah. Um, so I, I don't want to leave all my patients because they're looking for a black female doctor and I enjoy my interactions with them, but it's working for big corporations. I don't feel that they do the hard work. Like you said earlier, this is hard work when you take care of patients in the inner city. This is hard work. This does not deal with 15 minute slots. I'm dealing with a human being that's going through COVID, that's going through emotional lability, that, that just lost her son to, to, um, um, suicide. Like I can't just see her in 15 minutes. So I'm, I'm gonna get off the stage because I'm, I'm emotional, mm. but I just, I thank you so much for this. And yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sleep on it and pray on it, but thank you so much. Dr. Absolutely. Dr. Thank you so we much. Appreciate you, Dr. Tinker. Keep up the great work. Says you matter. You're, you're necessary. You need it. So don't forget it. And, and what you're, what you're going through is exactly why we have plantation theory, the balance between freedom and security, the book, is the black professional struggle between freedom and security. And that's where we find ourselves. So thank you for your question. Thank you for your work. Um, yeah, Taye, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. Taye, welcome. Hi, hi, hello. Thank you both for hosting this space. I really appreciate having the opportunity to um, ask the question. And my question is pretty simple um, uh, for Dr. Joy. Do you think in our country as deeply rooted as things such as post-traumatic slave syndrome and, you know, white supremacy are, do you think we can actually get to a place of racial liberation, like really moving even past equity, which seems to be the buzzword right now, and really getting to a place of racial liberation? Do you think that our country is capable of that? You know, um, that's a really good question. I think for me, I wouldn't do this work if I didn't have hope. And I believe that America is a divine experiment. And while, you know, it's the only place in the world that if it can happen here, it will happen everywhere else. And I believe that what it's going to take for it to happen here is for America to be brought to her knees. I believe that. Um, yes, indeed, it's possible, but this is not going to be, you know, it's like anything else. We, we are looking at revolution. We're looking at a revolutionary change. And that is going to be, uh, that's, we're on a precipice. We're on a precipice of change. And we know it because of the violence, both uh, the violence that people are, are, are kind of exacting on themselves, uh, the violence that they're exacting on others. Um, just the, again, the angst that we're seeing, uh, the, 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 the difficulties we're experiencing with children. If we had time, you know, I would, uh, John and I have had these conversations about looking at, uh, you know, the rise and fall of a civilization and, and trying to figure out where we are in this. I believe America, again, as bad as things are, America is going to ultimately be the answer. But not until there is a great humbling and great pain and great suffering, which is is the crucible. That's that's where we are. Uh, I would love to say that, yeah, we're going to all do a good round of we are the world and kumbaya will be fine. But that's just not going to happen. It, there is going to be a, a, you know, the what is it that that coming to grips with our past um, and embracing really, truly learning how to embrace uh, uh, our humanity. And I think 
Uh, our children are losing it. I think uh, institutions are losing it. And it's going to require, it's going to, re- you know, it's like anything else. You know, my, my husband and I were talking about, you know, even our kids and, and looking at how some of my kids, you know, they, they kind of move through life one, one way and others had to hit the wall. <laughs> you know, they just, not, no matter what you did, they, they were going to have to hit the wall. And America's got to hit the wall. Because with all the knowledge, this is not a want of knowledge. This is a, a avoidance, a deliberate and intentional avoidance of what is true mm. and fair and just and right. And we're going to pay for that. And and once we do, we will be equipped to uh, to lead the world and maybe um, at least lead ourselves into something that is uh, some semblance of, of peace and unity. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it would be a misnomer to... to to ask if it's if we're capable, I think ca- capability is not the question; it's willingness, right? And, we, and we've talked about that in plantation theory many times. There's not a, it's nothing we can't do. It's what are we willing to do uh, as as a country? But Ty, thank you so much for your question uh, and for for joining us this evening. Thank you both. For sure, for sure, brother Greg. Hey, hey, hey! Uh, I just want to say, um, pleasure to be here. Flowers to you, my brother for uh, connecting with Dr. Guru for, you know, just creating this space where this conversation can happen. Um, Dr. Dr. Guru, I've been in your presence a couple of times to a couple of lectures when you've traversed uh, Philly. Um, And just, I appreciate your work and your look at it from this perspective. And, you know, there's just so much that has been said tonight in reflection to this conversation around um, redemption. I think there's an undertone of redemption. And I think that's part of the, the conversation that kind of y'all just moved through is what does America look like when it's asking for forgiveness? And I think that that's a challenging thing for, you know, people in black bodies, brown bodies, or people who are marginalized in general. Because um, it's like, you didn't ask for this, you you know, so you're sitting here experiencing all these these challenges and with work so daunting and draining and demanding you know i guess my question to you doc is you know where do you generate hope from and how do you define healing especially in a world where we're fighting to embrace one's humanity beyond all these identity markers that create business models out of trauma out of race you know, I think that's the other thing we're not talking about. Capitalism is highly infused into this work around racial equity. This is big business. Trauma is big business. Pain is big business. Conflict is big business, right? So I guess that those are my questions. Um, you know, where do you where do you generate hope from, and how do you define healing? Well, you know, I, that's probably uh, one of the most important questions, actually. Uh, and my hope really uh, stems from a spiritual place. Um, there, you know, you have to have, and I think the one thing that we tend to do is center things and center even the way we think and, and what we we see. We center it in, in kind of an otherness. We, we center it in all of these uh, proximal uh, realities. We, we center everything in what we've been, we've been given, what we've been taught, what we've been Shown And sometimes, you know, someone will say to you, you know, what's the weather going to be? And I say, what's the weather going to be? Well, let's look. And we say, well, they say it's going to be, it's a, it's a 40% chance of rain. But when you look outside, it's raining. That's a hundred percent. 
And that's real. And sometimes we don't just look outside. We don't look at those the simple things. Because, you know, there are people all over the world that, you know, they don't have cell phones. They have no clue about what a clubhouse is. And they're full human beings, loving and enjoying and living and struggling like all of us. We're all very different on this planet. And we tend to center ourselves in this American experience. And that's why I really, you know, I guess my hope stems from this this uh, wonderful, it's a really a beautiful quotation uh, that's from, uh, from the Baha'i Faith. And it says that the black man is like the pupil of the eye, surrounded by a sea of white. But it is the pupil that contains the sight. It beholds what is before it. My people are, are people of vision. We always have been. And pe- we've been sought out because we can see. People don't listen, but we have always seen it. And I trust that. I trust that it was what my grandmother taught me. It is what my mother taught me. It is what I, when I am still and I'm meditating or I'm in prayer or I'm watching the ocean or I'm fishing, um, it is that truth. Because you see, truth happens a lot of different ways. Knowing happens in a different way. And I can remember knowing before I could verbalize it. I can remember sitting in classrooms knowing in spite of everything that was being said to the contrary. It was a knowing, a quiet knowing. And we've got to trust that because we are the pupil. We are seeing and we've got to invite that in each other. and We've got to invite that truth that we see. That is what gives me hope because I know this to be true. I know it. I don't just believe it. I know it. And it's a way of knowing that can't be, I don't know if you could ever measure it. But when you meet other folks that know it, it's that gentle smile. It's that nod that helps you know that they know. And those are invisible truths. But they're true nonetheless. That's where my hope comes from. Thanks so much, doctor. I appreciate it. Uh, last thing I wanted to share was the first country I went to in Africa uh, was uh, Lesotho as well. <laughs> uh, and so when you were sharing that story, I was like blown away. That was three. It was humbling mm. to country. Who, their only export was labor. Blue mm. Mm. Because mm. Surrounded by South Africa and nothing mm. else. And mm. it's, a, it's, 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 it, it, for me, it was humbling in, in many ways to see the class systems, even in the village that I stayed in, hmm. where, you know, the, the family that brought us in to do the work around community development and HIV education at that time, there was, um, they, they built us an outhouse. And, you know, that was humbling for somebody that was American. But you do not understand hmm. how, even though in a black body, hmm. how you've been Americanized till you get out this country. That's right. Separate. <laughs> And you start to say, ooh, that latrine don't smell too right. Ooh, <laughs> I don't know about that. And then the last thing I'll share is, is um, I remember going into the church in the village. It was the biggest thing in the village. And um, Jesus was white, and I was with some white people. And uh, the lady who was showing us around, she was about 40. She said, uh, she said, um, it was like, I was like, the Jesus is white? And then um, she, I was like, Jesus wasn't white. Jesus was, was brown, black. She was like, Oh, I didn't know. And then the white people that was with me said, he's telling the truth. He wasn't white. 
And she was like, she felt like she had sinned. And that was the first time, I think, as a 22-year-old, I really saw the impact of colonialism. In that yep. village, in yep. Lesotho, she had no clue that the Jesus she was praying to hmm. possibly been the wrong one. Hey, so that folks still doing that. <laughs> They're doing that here. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. And you gave me some motivation to finish a couple of my ideas and a couple of my books and Sometimes the spirit got to move and the ancestors come through the elders. And so I appreciate that. I heard that the same way you probably felt it in that moment. So I got some mm. writing. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate you, Jim. Love you, brother John. Love you back, you bro. Talk to you. Right, well, Reblacka for the blacks. <laughs> and so this is, this is a friend, a phenomenal light and energy in this work. And she is, uh, she is so excited to speak. Speak with you, Dr. Joy Black, and for the Blacks, the floor is yours, sis. Love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, John. For the Blacks. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Joy. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I'll be super fast. So I changed my PTR to, okay, so it's like Clubhouse Speak. So I changed my profile picture to you, which you inspired me. It's like, what, what did you do? What you inspired me to do, Black in 2001. I had just graduated from Howard University, uh, took classes under Dr. Wade Boykin, uh, Psychology of the Black Experience, and he didn't cover uh, post-traumatic slave, uh, slave syndrome, but I was going to this play because I was into theater, and there was this whole play, I don't know if you're familiar with it, in 2001, somewhere downtown Manhattan, off-Broadway, about your work, literally. Just the whole, like, literally acting yep. out your theories. Yep, uh, I was, I was there. <laughs> oh well, then yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I might even have met you. So, so many years ago, literally, right? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. And I met you, and I was like, whoa! And I literally was taking, as I like to say, copious notes in my four hundred page notepad for four hundred years of issues of the blackness. And I was like, I'm going to do a whole play, a one woman show, different characters based on post-traumatic slave syndrome. Literally, you set me on this trajectory of the, of the demystification of racial trauma and healing through humor and the arts. You. Wow. So, oh, I never knew that. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, this is no joke. So I was on the train and I saw this mother. It was like the D train, whatever. And she was talking to her little two-year-old and she said, sit your ass down. And I was like, boom, that's the name of my one woman show. Sit your ass down. Because post-traumatic slave syndrome spoke about how the trauma is reinforced, unfortunately, right? Incongruent to the situation, right? We're not on a plantation. Shout out to plantation theory, right? We're on the D train, <laughs> you know, in the 21st century, right? But we're still acting out this trauma slash healing that still looks like trauma and feels like trauma and sounds like trauma. So yeah, no, that's, that, that's all you. So that character is GBG ghetto bougie girl. <laughs> uh, she walks around with, with Tim's and Gucci and <laughs> you know, she's just, she's just a, an amalgam of like every different luxury brand. And again, like what are the, what are the coping mechanisms that we, that we do right to deal with, uh, the social um, and, you know, political and educational trauma that is being quote unquote black in America. Uh, so shout out to you. That's it. Quick. <laughs> wow. That, I love that's you. probably I love you black. Yeah. <laughs> that's you. That's you. all you. 
Told all, you you're gonna get your flowers tonight, guys. All your research, your book, like listen, wow. this is this is years. And so I do I do trainings. I just trained uh over a thousand teachers for the Atlanta Public School District. Um, so mentioned you and your research. So my question, and I do all the time when I do diversity training. So my question um, is going to be policy related, right? So teacher preparatory programs. Um, so basically for teachers, not you, but for anyone else in the room who, you know, may or may not be as familiar with like the fact that like, you know, we do get a map, teachers get like master's degrees in education. Um, and then there's this whole like, Fetishization, I, in my opinion, to a certain degree of like teaching in the hood, teaching in the ghetto, right? Um, but none of the, the 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 programs don't actually focus in any way, shape, or form on the trauma. They don't mention you at all. <laughs> they don't mention your theory, you know. Uh, and when you go to these charter schools, it's it's very um, punitive uh, instead of restorative, right? So what? What can what can you do? Pressure, no pressure, but pressure. Wink, wink. Love you, Black. What um, what conversations are you or could you um, are you already having or could you have with the Bidens of the world, uh, with uh, you know school boards of the world, critical race theory not not included, <laughs> um, to make this mandatory? That's what I think is part. Of, and, and shout out to my mentor, Dr. Yolanda Sealy Ruiz. Um, who also does racial literacy roundtables, who's also great out of Teachers, Co- Top, Teachers College, Columbia University, a teacher preparatory program, right? So she she and I have these conversations a lot, right? Like the making this mandatory, right, to talk about race. Even if you're you're going to go teach in a, in a white school, white children need to learn learn about racial trauma and healing too, you know. But right now. It's not. It's not mandated. You can get. You can get a degree. You can get a four point Not take one class and then throw. And they throw you into you know quote unquote the Bronx. That's how they market it. You're gonna go into the worst schools in Baltimore. So what is the conversation about making racial trauma and healing mandatory as part of? You can't graduate and get a degree until you do or step into a classroom. <laughs> um, uh, good luck. Uh, one of <laughs> one of the things that um, I'm doing, you know, uh, again, uh, you you when he introduced me and, and did my bio, I talked about evidence based models. Here's here's the problem with every whenever we're trying to take something to scale and we're trying to implement it in a way, whether it's mandatory or not, it it, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. I mean, in all the work that I've done across the United States and even outside of the United States, there's always a local context. And we will say this worked here. It should be then implemented across the board. Now, on a general level, I know you're not saying that. You're saying this is something that needs to be mandatory in whatever shape or form it takes. But I think the issue with with uh, the systems here in America is a kind of the cookie cutter. Just give me the plans so I can just take it and overlay it over everything uh, and then everyone will have it. And it simply doesn't work like that. It's a harder process. What worked in Cleveland is not going to work in Portland. And sometimes even when you start looking at the teachers, you have to look at the local context. They, you have teachers, uh, administrators. I'm getting ready to do. Um, uh, I, I was saying a symposium in Los Angeles, and I'm I'm actually partnering with Los Angeles Unified School District, right, to do this partnership with Be the Healing. 
and where I'm introducing trauma and I'm introducing it not just to teachers, not just to administrators, but also to parents and to youth in a way that uh, they can begin to look at how can I utilize this in my space? How can it be utilized? Now, my model, I have an educational model. It, it's been tested. It works, right? When you start talking about restorative justice as opposed to a punitive, when you start looking at Southern schools, just go to the South, it's another country. It's like being in another country than being in L.A. or Chicago. And so I think we have to um, look at this in a very different way because what, what folks here are used to uh, is this kind of linear and sequential approach to things. This is how we do it. A follows B follows C. And that's just not, it's, it's just, it that's just doesn't work. Which is a reason why, at also at the end of his his description of my bio, we start talking about improvement strategies. So improvement, and what does improvement look like? Um, let me let me kind of put this in a perspective so you can understand what I'm talking about. Real life stuff. My grandkids uh, going to a school in Portland, Oregon. My fault. I brought them there. <laughs> okay, so they're in, by my kids now have kids and they're in school. And of course, anywhere my grandkids are, I show up. I show up, I train for free. <laughs> I do all of that for free because I got skin in the game. Okay. So what happened was um, in my granddaughter and my grandson's school, it's the elementary school, it's actually elementary middle. But uh, the, the teachers were complaining that black parents, they were saying the black parents are not they're not really interested in their kids. And they, people always say they don't care about their kids. They don't show up for the uh, teacher-parent teacher parent conferences. They're not there at the back-to-school night or whatever. Um, and so the principal uh, brought everybody together, to, and, he, and he made the statement that, you know, um, black parents are not attending. The problem is black parents aren't attending um, teacher-parent conferences. And so my daughter and her friends, you know, all of whom are black, went to this principal who was white and said, you know, first of all, you're blaming people and you're blaming the very people that you really would like to have in the school. So let us reframe that problem for you so that you are not blaming them and you're not hiding the answer in your actual problem statement. Because if the problem is black parents aren't showing up, then the answer is black parents just need to show up. And the problem is black parents. And it's never the people. It's always, almost always the system. So my, my daughter says, we're not getting attendance of all parents uh, to back to school night and, and to teacher parent conferences, which actually states what the problem is. We're not getting the full participation of all parents. Then you can go to that target population, which my daughter decided to do. She and her friends said, well, let us reach out to black parents. Now, did they go to the black parents and go, why y'all ain't going? No, they said, why do you think a parent may not go to a you know, parent-teacher conference? So this one parent said, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I don't have time. Okay, so if you had time, you'd go. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I don't have transportation. Okay, so if you had time and you had transportation, uh, well, you know, sometimes I don't have child care. Okay, so if you had time, you had transportation, you had childcare, you would come to, you know, parent-teacher conferences, and there's a silence. And the parent says, I don't feel welcome in that building. So the problem, I mean, unless you talk to that parent, you're not going to get that. So then my daughter says, this is data. This is data. It's empathy interviewing, but it's data. 
And then she says to the parent, well, tell me a place that you go when you do feel welcome. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel welcome when I, when I go to church. You know, everybody's nice to me. And she says, so, you know, tell me about a time in the school, you know, where you, you didn't feel welcome. Well, when I walk in the door and the woman at the desk act like she can't see me or say hello. And, you know, I don't ever see, they only call, you know, halfway through the year and tell me my kid hasn't been doing anything all year. What am I supposed to do then? And I don't ever see anything positive on the wall about, you know, so all of these are data points. So my daughter created something called Black Parent Night at the school. And of course, at first it was, there was a whole thing online. This is self-segregation. She goes, well, what do you think PTA? That's, you know, uh, 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 White Parent Night. And nobody seemed to be having a problem with that. So it went back and forth. And finally, the you know, black parents, first couple of times, there was gripe sessions. They were mad. They were, and then all of a sudden, they started getting ideas about what they needed. So the, what the principal did was he started saying, attaching to their performance review, the performance review of these teachers, how soon you got, in touch, you got in touch with parents. Next thing you know, their little postcards going out during the summer, come to our ice cream social, come look at where your desk is going to be, because he attached it to something that meant something to them. Then, you know, as a result of that, of course, they, all of these black parents are now coming in the building, building, Latinx parents are showing up. They closed the achievement gap 18 points. That wasn't even what they were trying to do. Close the achievement gap eight by 18 points simply by listening to the parents. Root cause analysis, it wasn't a welcoming place. They identified why it wasn't a welcoming place. They identified the real problem and they were able to solve it. But if you were to start with that first analysis, you know, black parents don't care about their kids. They don't want to come to, they don't come to back to school night or parent-teacher conferences. My, the reason I point that out to you, my daughter then got asked, it was so successful, that other schools in the area said, well, can you come and do it at my school? And she said, no, I can't do it at your school because I don't have a connection to that school. It's about relationships. It's about context. So you've got to find out from your, your school, from your people, from your parents, what they think and feel. And until you do, you can't take this and put this on top of that school and think it's going to work. So again, it's it's really recognizing my my actual model is called the relationship approach. It's all about relationships. Period. Relationships of parents to schools, uh, the, the schools to to the teachers to the community. It's a village. It really is. And if you want to heal, you got to heal the village. Everyone. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of The Forefront Radio. This was the end of the discussion, part two of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Thank you so much and peace and blessings to you all. Tune in to The Forefront Radio, www.anchor.fm slash The Forefront. Listen every week on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, and many other platforms. Hey, my friend. 
You have just listened to The Forefront Radio. Please leave your comment and input about the show, what you like about the show, as well as any general feedback on ways to improve. We need your help to acquire new equipment to implement studio quality video and audio to our friends. Contribute as little as $4.99. It's only worth a cup of coffee. Then we can produce documentaries, more episodes, and great info for the diaspora. Go to Cash App and enter A-P-H-I-E-L-L-E-V-I to donate to the Forefront Radio to cover our advertising costs and reach more people. Catch our next episode on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, anchor.fm slash the forefront. Always remember, the truth shall liberate the mind. Peace to the heirs of promise and the heritage of the scattered 12 tribes.